As we dive into another difficult passage, we're going to be in Matthew 25 today, and finally we're dividing up the passage so we're not taking the whole chapter like we did last week with 51 verses. Somebody said last week, did you realize that you went over? I'm like, yeah, we had 51 verses in one of the hardest chapters in the New Testament. We went over, but uh, tough stuff, and I think we did it justice and hopefully came out with some practical, relevant things, but... If you're new to God's Word, uh, if you don't even have a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat in front of you. You can find it on your mobile app, and uh, you turn it about halfway. It's Old Testament, New Testament. It's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew. We're in chapter 25. I want to set the scene and kind of paint a picture again as we dive into this, because end times for a lot of you is just technical. It's just overwhelming. It's head spinning, and it's not your cup of tea. It's not most people's cup of tea, and um, I want to personalize it. I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that you recently got engaged, and your fiancé gave you a ring, pledged his love to you, and promised that the wedding would take place very soon, but first he has to attend to business out of the country. In the meantime, he's left you in charge of taking care of some projects and some tasks that are essential before you can be married. You thought he'd be back soon, but turns out it's been much longer than you anticipated. Since he's left, the country is broken out in war. The economy is turned upside down. The political situation is downright scary. Natural disasters seem to be occurring with greater frequency and intensity. And relationships and friendships aren't what they used to be. Everyone's on edge. Then one day out of the blue, your fiancé returns, unannounced, totally by surprise, and you could not be happier. You're filled with joy like you've never known before. That's just a pathetic attempt on my part to express how the end times should be for a believer. I want to read for you not our passage, but as a prep for our passage, I want to read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, just a few verses to set the tone for us today, because Paul is saying that for a believer, the day of the Lord, the second coming, will not catch us like a thief in the night. Listen to what he says. I really don't need to write to you about how and when all of this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, when people are saying all is well, everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall upon them as suddenly as a woman's birth pains begin with her child when it's about to be born, and there will be no escape. But you are not in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you are children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be sober. Night is the time for sleep and the time when people get drunk. But let us live in the light and think clearly, protected by the body armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet, the confidence of our salvation. For God decided to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. For he died for us so that we can live with him forever, whether we are dead or alive at the time of his return. Therefore, encourage each other and build each other up 
just as you are already doing. So I hope as we approach this today, it's not one of fear and dread and, oh my gosh, when's it going to happen and it's going to blindside us. The day of the Lord, Christ's second coming, is not going to take us by surprise like it does the unbelieving world. We won't know the day or the hour, but it will be the most joyful, wonderful time of our lives. It will be the fulfillment of everything that we have longed for and hoped for. The culmination of that, really the beginning, as C.S. Lewis says, of the first chapter of our life, that everything here is, as he said, like a shadow land compared to the reality ahead of us. So with that in mind, let's look at our passage, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish did not take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were aroused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out to meet him. And the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, (coughs) Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us, so go And shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. Verse 14, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. Some of your Bibles say talent. A talent back in the day was made of silver. It weighed anywhere between 58 and 80 pounds. And it represented about 15 to 20 years of a a day laborer's wages. So it was a significant amount of money. Verse 16. The servant who received the five bags of silver began immediately to invest the money and earned more. The servant with the two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from the trip And called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Verse 22, the servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling the small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Again, let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. And I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. 
If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money with the money lenders? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. For those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Tough stuff, but a lot here for us. And I want to take it apart, and I want to explain some stuff before we dive in and draw some points. In the first story, the ten virgins really stresses the importance of being ready for Christ's return. The second story, the parable of the talent, stresses the importance of serving the king while he's away. <coughs> so one is about being prepared, being ready. The other, the other is about being active and serving the king while he's away. In the first parable or the first story, the bridegroom represents Jesus. And the virgins represent professing disciples, those who claim to have a relationship with God through Christ. The foolish virgins represent false disciples, and the wise or the prudent virgins represent true disciples. And back in Matthew chapter 7, we saw that prudent described the man who not only heard Jesus' words, but acted upon them. Whereas foolish represented the man who heard Jesus' words and did nothing with it. So that same idea carries forward here, that same theme. And really, Jesus is drawing upon Jewish marriage culture in this story. Because in Jewish marriage custom or culture, the groom and his friends would leave the home of the groom and proceed to the home of the bride where the marriage ceremony was conducted. Then this was often at night, and when the ceremony was over, then the entire wedding party returned to the groom's house for a celebratory banquet. And so the lamps are not the the kind of indoor lamps that we think of that have kind of a cup or a dish of oil, and they burn forever. These are the outdoor torches, the ones that are rags that are bundled together and then doused in olive oil, and they only burn for about 15 minutes before they flame out. So unless you bring along extra oil, they're going to go out. And the torches are not just decorative mood setting inside of a home. They are used to march with the bridegroom, with the king, to the celebration together and light the path. Taking oil to fuel the torches represents being prepared, being ready. Neglecting to bring additional oil represents being unprepared and not ready. Many commentators, it's interesting to note, interpret the the meaning of the oil as representing the Holy Spirit and his work at salvation meaning that salvation is more than a mere profession. And we're going to find that next week in our passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference between proclaiming something with our lips and truly believing something in our heart and making it our own, internalizing it. And those who merely profess to be saved and don't actually possess the Spirit will be excluded from the wedding feast, from the kingdom of God. They won't be ready. They won't be prepared. Notice that both stories involve a delay. In verse 5 it says, while the bridegroom was delaying. 
in verse 19, it says, after the master was gone for a long time. Jesus is not concerned with the delay. The delay is intentional. He's well aware of the delay. What he's concerned about is that you and I are ready, that we are alert, that we are watchful for his return. And notice that in both stories, everyone was invited to play a part. All of the virgins were invited to the wedding feast. Not all made it in, but they were all invited. All of the servants were entrusted money to multiply and to invest and to be fruitful with. Not all were faithful, but they were all entrusted that. Having said all this, there's three main themes that I, say that, that I, that I see in the passage today, and they're really quite simple, but I believe they really break down our passage well. The first theme that I see, if you're taking notes on the outline, is responsibility. Responsibility. Each of us is called to personal responsibility. It's not about our pastor's faith or our parents' faith or you know, some leader that we follow. It's each one of us is personally accountable for our spiritual condition and for our own faith. I read a humorous story this week. Two shipwrecked men in tattered clothes slouched together at one end of a lifeboat. As they casually watched three other people on the other end of the boat furiously bailing water, trying to keep the vessel afloat, one man then said to the other, Thank God that hole isn't on our end of the boat. Which is so typical of many of us that we see something, but not my problem. You know, that's not my issue. That's somebody else. I'm not taking responsibility. I'm not becoming invested. In the first story, notice that all of the women got drowsy and fell asleep. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. It's not like five, the five wise, prudent virgins stayed awake and kept their lights and their lamps burning. In fact, most theologians believe that they didn't even light their lamps until the bridegroom announced his coming. And that's how quickly those torches would go out. And so not having additional oil was a horrible... I mean, you come to a wedding, you're prepared to celebrate, bring the oil, you know you're going to be lighting the way. But all were drowsy, all fell asleep, which kind of reminds us of the disciples in the garden. Where Jesus is like, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour without falling asleep? And so Jesus is not lifting up what it means to be perfect, what it means to be superhuman. He recognizes our humanity. But to be, to be responsible, to be ready, is to take care of things in advance. To take care of our affairs in advance. And we're going to talk about what that means since torches required regular filling or refilling, it was the personal responsibility of each person <clears throat> to be prepared to go with the bridegroom to the wedding banquet and to bring additional oil so they wouldn't run into that situation. And spiritually speaking, being prepared means having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It means knowing the bridegroom personally. That's what it means for us to be prepared for Jesus' second coming. 1 Thessalonians 5, what we just read in the New American Standard Version, I like what it says in verses 9 to 11. It says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are also doing. 
Remember last week we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, where believers were concerned about those who had fallen asleep, those who had died uh, going before them, that they were going to miss out on the second coming. And we also looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where believers themselves were concerned that they had missed the rapture, that they had missed the second coming. And Paul assures them that whether you're awake or asleep, physically, spiritually, you're okay if you're his. And so to have a relationship with God through Christ is what it means to be ready, to be prepared, to be alert. In the second story, again, the emphasis is on responsibility. Each servant is given according to or in proportion to their ability. And doesn't it make sense that God is our creator who designed us, who knit us together so wonderfully and beautifully in our mother's womb as David proclaims in Psalm 139, knows our abilities. He knows our wiring. And he doesn't give somebody who's unable to multiply five talents, five or ten or fifteen. He gives them two or one. And so God is not expecting you to do something that you're not equipped to do. He's expecting you to do exactly what he wired you to do. But he's expecting for you and for, for me to be engaged, to be active in it and not passive. Not to sit on what he's given to us and do nothing. Using our God-given abilities wisely and productively is what it means to be his disciple. That's what it means to be a true disciple of Christ. And scripture teaches us that it will be rewarded with additional opportunities to serve God faithfully and fruitfully. That, that, that fact is illustrated in verse 29 of our passage, which says everyone who has will be given more. Seems kind of unfair, but it's true. For those who are productive, for those who are doing something with their abilities and talents and opportunities, God-given opportunities, God's going to give them more. And the people that aren't faithful, even what they have, God's going to take it away because it's, it's vain, it's fruitless. And it's not about works. It's not about works that earn our salvation. It's about works that represent and validate the fact that we are saved. And we are energized by the Holy Spirit who is working through us to do all, all things. It's uh, Ephesians 2.10. You know, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's God doing good works through us. It's not about us at all. Well, we have a responsibility to use and increase what's been given to us, what's been entrusted to us. In verse 16, we see that the first guy immediately increased his five talents of silver. The second guy, verse 17, did the same thing. The third guy sounds like Jonah. The first thing that it says he does is he goes away. He leaves. Right? Jonah gets the, the order from God, and Jonah bails. He goes the opposite direction. He runs. He flees from God's will. It seems like that's what this guy does. And then in verses 18 and 25, it emphasizes the fact that he hid the money, which seems so... Uh, <clears throat> So uh, representative of Adam and Eve in their, in their condition of being out of, out of fellowship or out of relationship with God, when they realized that they had sinned and gone again, they hid themselves in shame and in fear. And that's what servants do when they know that they are unfaithful. They, they hide. They run. And that's exactly what this guy does. One person's perspective. He asks the question, what does it mean for us to take responsibility for our life? in response to the ways that God has made us and called us. 
And he offers this. He simply says it means for us to work with the hand that we're dealt. You know, oftentimes we compare our situation against other people's situations. And we're like, why do they have it so easy? Why does everything just come to them so naturally? It seems so blessed. And I've got it hard with, I've got these disabilities. I've got these challenges. I've got these financial hardships. It's so much harder for me than it is for this person. Instead of trusting sovereignly that God made us, he designed our situation, he's able to change it at any moment, he is sovereign over that, and we need to trust that he has entrusted things to us according to our ability, not beyond it. Those of you who know me know that one of my favorite card games is a game called 500, and those of you who don't play cards, you're like, who cares? But what I love about 500 is that there are so many different options. Most card games, you get your hand and you think, oh, this stinks. There's nothing I can do with this. There are no options. In 500, there's bidding. There's trump. You have a partner, and their hand can dramatically change your hand. There's a kitty of five cards in the middle, and if you win that, that kitty, it can transform your hand. There are strategies for being aggressive. There are strategies for being defensive. It's so much fun because there are so many different options as you take responsibility for the hand that's given to you. And friends, that's so true of our Christian life. Rather than moaning and griping about the hand or the lot that's been dealt to us, we, we have to realize through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, there are so many options and roads available to us to honor God and to be fruitful with what he has entrusted to us and to multiply it and to grow it and to honor him. And that's where the joy comes, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Well, in verse 21 and 23, the master replies a similar thing to both the first and the second servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And these identical statements of praise are irregardless of the amount of money that they earned or that they were entrusted, stressing the fact that it's the faithfulness in using their gifts and the potential that the master is concerned about. He's not concerned about what was entrusted or how much it grew. He's just concerned about the process of us being engaged and us being faithful with the master's money and with the resources he's given to us. So the first thing, the first theme I see in both stories is responsibility. The second is ownership. The second is ownership. In each story, the glaring part is the deflection of responsibility. The, the transference of blame. The foolish women expect the wise ones to keep, to help them with uh, their lack of oil. And the lazy servant deflects his responsibility back upon, literally blames the character of his master for his irresponsibility. I would have done something, but I know you're a harsh, shrewd man. You know, gathering where you haven't sowed and harvesting where, you know, you're just, you know, you have that reputation. And the master, rather than acknowledging that and validating that, is holding him accountable to his own words. If that was your opinion of me, if that was your perception of me, then this is what you should have done rather than what you did. I mean, you're not bailing yourself out by deflecting it and throwing it back on me. You still need to take ownership for your situation. The wise women rightly make the foolish ones own their situation and go buy additional oil. 
And the master, as I said, doesn't validate the servant's perception of him, but he makes him own his situation and his lack of responsibility. And the spiritual lesson here is that in salvation, we are required to take responsibility and ownership of our relationship with God. We can't say, well, you know, I never really had a chance to accept you, or I thought going to church was enough, or I thought because my parents knew you and had a relationship with you that I could draft behind that. As one person said, no one will enter the kingdom of God on the coattails of someone else's faith or someone else's true profession. It's personal. It's taking ownership, each one of us, for ourselves. And please understand that familiarity is not the same as having a relationship with God. I mean, next week in the sheep and the goats passage that we're going to be covering, Lord, Lord, you know, we saw you, we ate with you, we, we, we heard your teaching, we, we know all about you. But Jesus is like, but that's not the same thing as knowing me. Listen to what Luke writes in chapter 13, verse 24. Words of Jesus. Work hard to enter the narrow gate to God's kingdom. For many will try to enter, but will fail. When the master of the house has locked the door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate with you and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, you who do evil. We're either dressed in the righteousness of Christ, faultless to stand before the throne as the hymn goes, or we're dressed in our own filthy rags where scripture says even our best righteousness is like filthy rags. It's not fit. It's not appropriate. Jesus goes on in the book of Revelation chapter 3 to say, Write this letter to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. When he opens, no one can close. And when he closes, no one can open. He says, I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have a little strength, yet you have obeyed my word and did not deny me. Entrance into the kingdom of God is having a personal relationship with God through Jesus. That's why Jesus went to the cross. We're celebrating communion today, and I hope that everyone who participates today understands not only what it's all about, but that you have a personal relationship. Because if you don't, you should really pass for now. Because the Bible says communion isn't this fun ceremony that we do together. It's representative of your life, that you have passed from death to life that Jesus has covered your sin with the blood of his sacrifice at Calvary. Just like at Passover, the Jews put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over that home and not inflict death upon the firstborn male in each home as he did with the Egyptians. The imagery throughout the Bible is consistent and it's powerful about what it means to have a relationship with God. The last point, it's a powerful point, and it's actually an encouraging one. And it's about entering God's joy. That's the third theme I see. I see responsibility, I see ownership, and I see entering into God's joy. And unfortunately, I don't see a lot of Christians entering into God's joy. I see a lot of us dutifully, obligatorily doing what we're called to do, but not very happy about it, hoping that it pays off someday and that we get rewarded for it. 
But as I said in the teaser, and I think it's printed on your outline, there's a term in the financial world which is called ROI. It's called return on investment. And it's what shareholders look for. It's what uh, financial advisors work toward. And I think the spiritual version of this is ROJ, return on joy. How much return are you getting on your faith and your joy? There's a verse that I share a lot from 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, where John the Apostle says, this is what the love of God means. You want to narrow down and boil it down what the love of God means? It means to keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome. And I would say that's the perfect example of and test for you and I to know whether we have entered into God's joy. You know that you have entered into the joy of your master and your Lord, that you do what he says, and it's not a hassle. It's not a hassle. It's the joy of your life. His heart is now your heart. His desires are now your desires. And you find such fulfillment and worth and joy in doing what he's called you to do, doing what he designed and created you to do. That's where joy comes into the picture. I told you that lady in my church growing up who wrote poems who said, one day we will meet face to face the one whom we have known heart to heart. That's joy. It's about using our gifts and abilities right now for his service and for his kingdom, knowing that that brings fulfillment and that brings joy. And one day when we see him face to face, we're going to enter into the fullness, the completeness, the perfection of his joy. I like what Eugene Peterson says. He says, joy is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience, which aren't always a fun path to to walk along, but that's where joy comes. I was sitting at the soup supper this this last Wednesday, and um, I was filled with such joy, and I couldn't even really articulate it or understand it at first, but I'm, I'm watching... Mama Pisani and the friends that she invited. I'm, I'm watching Marilyn, who's a new lady that I just met who brought some friends. And I, I'm seeing everybody collaborating together. I'm seeing Captain Juan and his wife Patty there from the Salvation Army and all that they're doing. And Jim and Denise Lawhead are at the table and we're talking and discussing. And I finally realized I am filled with joy right now because it is such a joy to collaborate with other people who love the Lord and who want to see his kingdom fulfilled. There is nothing more fulfilling and nothing more exciting than that. And, and Brittany and her team, I mean, Kelsey and her team putting together this micro-practice booklet and explaining that and people's faces lighting up about what that means for them and their family and Brittany leading us in worship. Like everybody did their part to glorify God and it was just so cool. And I'm like... This is what ministry is all about. Collaborating together and sharing the joy of our master. Some closing thoughts. It wasn't the portion, but it was the proportion that made the difference. The servants started as servants, but they were promoted to rulers. They were faithful with a few things, so the Lord entrusted them with many things. They worked and toiled And now they entered into joy. Their faithfulness gave them each the capacity for greater service and greater responsibility. 
In these closing chapters of Matthew, Jesus is repeatedly drilling into his disciples what it means to be prepared, to be awake, to be alert, to be ready. We see that time and time again. And in both stories today, Jesus teaches us that staying awake, being prepared, means faithfully doing what the Master has entrusted us to do. Each one of us has been entrusted with gifts and abilities and opportunities and things to do for God. Being prepared means doing it. And not just sitting back and waiting for his return. It means actively being a part of seeing his kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And longing for that day when that happens completely. Both stories encourage us to long for Jesus' appearing and to labor faithfully until he comes. We're called to watch and witness and work, as one person said. And I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. I love the way the New American Standard Version puts it. For all who have loved his appearing, longing for, anxiously awaiting the appearing of Christ when he splits the sky. Romans chapter 8, all of creation anxiously awaits for its reperfection, for its for God reprogramming and recreating it in his image. We're participating in communion in today and um there's a really cool tie-in, and I want to read a verse for you, then show you how it ties in. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That, that word in the Greek for delivered him over is the same word in our passage that the master used to entrust the resources. And in fact, that word is used more times in the New Testament of Jesus giving himself and allowing himself to be taken and, and delivered over and betrayed than it is of us faithfully being entrusted and doing stuff. And the, the message seems to be the God who didn't spare anything but gave you his own son, how can you not trust him? That he will give you all things. If he gave you Jesus, he's not going to hold back on you. He's going to give you everything you need. And this bread represents that. Take this bread, if you will. Rip it open. This bread represents Christ's body that was broken for you and broken for me. That we might have eternal life. Take and eat. In the same way Jesus took the cup and he said, this wine represents my blood which is shed for you for the remission of your sins take and drink in remembrance of this